0: Hello everyone, and welcome to the Bulletproof Hygiene Podcast, where mistakes are welcome, nothing is off limits, and growth is championed. I am Charissa Wood, a practicing dental hygienist who wants to share my passion for all things hygiene and the oral systemic connection to help empower, encourage, and equip you listeners. Bulletproof Hygiene's ultimate goal is to bring knowledge and tools that facilitate optimal patient care, healthy team culture, and professional fulfillment. If you are a growth-minded hygienist or dental professional looking to practice purposeful, profitable hygiene, then you're in the right place. Now, let's dive in and become Bulletproof together. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another week of Bulletproof Hygiene. I am so excited today to have a repeat guest, um, Megan Barnett. Welcome, Megan. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I was super excited to have you back because I learned so much from our previous podcast. Um, and your lecture that I attended, um, I guess it was October a year ago in St. Louis, um, actually had some pretty big impact on my own personal health and life. So I am super excited to have you joining us. For those of you who have not yet heard Megan, she is a functional nutrition specialist that has been collaborating with a holistic dentist. Um, she works a lot with Dr. Kelly Blodgett. And they've been working together for several years now, and I just feel like she has such a unique perspective and understanding of the body-mouth connection and how nutrition plays into it. And if you missed our first podcast together, I recommend you go back and check it out. It is episode 90 called Root Cause with Megan Barnett, because you will see she has a wealth of information that is so helpful to us in the dental world. So Megan, I know that you are the co-owner of BioLounge and also a developer and co-owner of Florosophy. So will you just take a minute and share a little about both of those endeavors?
1: Sure, absolutely. Um, So BioLounge is a functional medicine clinic in Portland, Oregon. Uh, It was started about almost six years ago by my business partner, Jeff Grimm, and he had a vision to create a medical space that was really comfortable for patients and casual. When you walk in the door, you're gonna see records on the wall. There's a record playing, sometimes he's playing the guitar. Um, We have a very comfortable and close relationship with our patients. But the point of the clinic was to have a place where people that were really interested in their own health could pair with a provider that would mentor them and help them improve their overall health and extend their health span. And so that's our aim with every patient, regardless of where they, kind of enter the health spectrum, right? And You can come see us if you are extremely well and you're looking to figure out how to optimize your own biochemistry. You can come to us if you are extremely ill and you want somebody to help you identify what is going on and how to support your healing. So um, that's really fulfilling. I became a business partner and co-owner with um, Jeff uh, about two years ago, but I've worked with him ever since the beginning when um, BioLounge opened. And then through the pandemic, Uh, we were working remotely and my kids were home and I felt like I had free time on my hands, which was a mirage, but, um, it felt (laughs) like for a minute and, um, I had been utilizing soluble fibers in my clinical setting to support different presentations, everything from digestive issues to hormone imbalances, um, gallbladder problems, cognitive function, heart disease, but I was having a really hard time finding, uh, either a single fiber or blends that were doing what I wanted them to do without side effects. So I decided to create my own blends and then called upon a good friend who's a business strategist and said, Hey, since we're both at home and you know, the kids are at home with us, Hey, should we just start this new company? So, um, fluorosophy was born from that, uh, desire to have an option for my patients that was clean. So it's an, or I have three organic soluble fiber blends that are catered to different presentations in the patient population.
0: Nice. I love it. And for those of you listeners who are dealing with any kind of GI issues or hormonal imbalance, um, if you're having a lot of, um, you know, symptoms around your cycle, I would personally recommend checking out Fluorosophy. It's a, it's a very smart way to manage those sorts of things. So dig into that. They have a great website and we will put that on the show notes so you can learn more. Um, for our regular listeners, I know you guys are so familiar with me talking about oral pathogens in the form of bacteria and how we can identify them and what we need to do about them and how they impact everything we do. And yes, obviously they play a huge role in the disease process, both orally and systemically, but there are some other lions, tigers, and bears that we've got to consider when we are looking at the clinical signs and symptoms of disease to really make sure we're addressing the root cause and truly helping our patients achieve health. It's not just about the bacteria. So today we are going beyond the bacteria to talk specifically about some of the other enemies we face in our operatories on the daily. And so, Megan, will you help us understand the components of the non-bacterial microbes that we might be facing?
1: Sure. Um, Some of the other microbial families that I'm thinking about when it comes to oral health as a whole is... Uh, fungal infections uh, or overgrowth. So that includes yeast. Um, I think we kind of use those terms inter- uh, interchangeably at this point, but, um, you know, Candida would be the most uh, common commensal microbe that can overgrow. And then you can actually have fungal infections that are not meant to be in your body. Um, I think about viral infections um, that can impact the overall health and well-being and uh, micronutrient status of the body. We now see parasitic overgrowth and infections affecting the oral microbiome as well. Yeah. So, not just
0: the bacteria, but the fungus, the virus, and the parasites.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Let's, if you will help us, I'd love to break these microbes down individually and kind of understand them from a few aspects. So, for each of these families, um, I kind of want to talk about how they may be presenting and not only necessarily from an oral perspective but any overall health symptoms that we might want to look for then how they interact with the oral bacteria then how can we test or identify their presence and then what can we do about them so let's kind of tackle each one of those families with those four questions i'd love to start first with candida Um, if you can share with us a little bit about, you know, the prevalence, if you know the stats for prevalence, um, you know, how often you're personally seeing or treating that.
1: Yeah, sure. I don't have the stats for prevalence because I think it's a, um, it's so largely under recognized and underdiagnosed. Even if we thought we had stats, they wouldn't be accurate, but here's what I'll tell you. I obviously am not an oral, healthcare provider. So I'm not looking in the mouth. I ask about the mouth. um, And I ask about oral health. Sometimes I look at their tongue if I'm curious about something going on. But my assessment about whether or not candida is playing a role in their oral health has to do with when I'm asking them questions about their overall health. So let me back up and tell you a little bit about what I might see in a patient presentation if I think that there's an overgrowth of yeast, fungus, et cetera, in the body. Would that be helpful? Yes, please. Okay. So when somebody enters my clinic and they uh, have something that would indicate to me an increased uh, level of histamine, so they have eczema, they have psoriasis, they're itchy, they are prone to hives, that will start my wheels turning a little bit. Second to that, constipation. Constipation is very well linked to an overgrowth of yeast in the gastrointestinal tract. One of the most common presentations that we don't talk about nearly enough is that people will report anxiety, insomnia, and symptoms of attention deficit disorder. Mm -hmm. So any of those uh, presentations I go, "Hmm, okay, well we better start thinking about this and I'll dive into why that is, Uh, but I also always follow that up by saying, do you crave sugar? Now, if they straight up say, yes, I crave sugar, then, okay, it's like, stamp, we're going to go down this road. That may sound really shocking to people because a lot of people, when I say that, think, doesn't everybody crave sugar? No, everybody doesn't crave sugar. But oftentimes people will say to me, oh, no, 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 I'm a carb freak. I I have popcorn every night." And then I have to say, oh, that's sugar. (laughs) Actually, that's broken down in the body, you know, to sugar, to glucose. So um, we're looking at how does yeast eat? How does it uh, fuel itself to reproduce? And that is with carbohydrates, with the breakdown of carbohydrates. So I'm not talking about a person that's like, oh, I love to have some quinoa lunch. I'm saying that white knuckling it because you need sugar feeling or you need to have that popcorn and you need to have that glass of wine, that can be an indicator that your little yeasty beast needs to be fed. It's asking to be fed like a dog begging for its dinner. Okay. (laughs) So that is one thing that's pretty clear, but it's important to know that when yeast is overgrowing in the body, it increases the histamine release from mast cells. And when that happens, the excess histamine in the body can lead to these other symptoms that we think about more as allergic symptoms, right? Congestion, itchiness, skin manifestations, et cetera. But the one we're not talking about that I'm so fascinated by is the brain connection. And this is what's crazy about it. So go back to the fact that you're going to have increased histamine when you have yeast. That's not the case necessarily with bacteria or virus or parasites or anything like that but in the presence of yeast, increased histamine release, increased allergic type release. That increased histamine in the brain modulates the neurotransmitters to release acetylcholine. Acetylcholine is an excitatory neurotransmitter. So if you are producing a high level of this excitatory neurotransmitter, you are going to have a problem with sleep, you're gonna have a problem with anxiety, and you're gonna have a problem with focus. And so we have this whole trifecta of neurological issues that when we treat yeast, they go away, which is pretty phenomenal to see, right? Because oftentimes you're on medication for these things lifelong. So those are some of the things that get me thinking about yeast in the body. And then if the person's been sent to me for an oral health issue, which is often the case, you know, as you said, I work with Dr. Blodgett. He sends people to me and says, can you figure out what's going on? Is there something else going on? Well, what we're seeing now in the research is that candida and bacterial microbes, I don't want to say overgrowth or infections because that may not even be the case, but the microbes kind of coalesce together and they actually, the hyphae of the yeast can integrate with the bacteria. And so when we go to use an antimicrobial to try and deal with the bacteria, it's resistant because of the presence of the yeast, because they've created a biofilm together. So there we have this situation where we're looking at, well, we're we're recognizing one thing, we're recognizing the bacterial problem, but we may not be recognizing the candida or the fungal overgrowth. And if we don't co-treat, we can't deal with the biofilm. So we just have perpetuation of the symptoms within the mouth and then often you're dealing with perpetuation of symptoms throughout the rest of the body.
0: You've got my wheels turning. That's really <laughs> really interesting. I guess I didn't realize that, that they they can work in tandem mm-hmm. and and create that biofilm where they almost protect each other. Yep. Huh. And then I know that you know just in in kind of your presentations and and what you've seen um that between the fungal biofilms and the bacterial biofilms that that can create opportunities for many oral manifestations, not just periodontal disease, but I know decay, there's certain biofilms, bacterial biofilms that work to to promote decay. You've got the ones that are um, creating some denture stomatitis, the, you know, obviously with periodontal disease, peri-implantitis, and then oral cancers.
1: Yep. Yep. All of the above, all of the above. Yeah. And I think it's interesting that circulating glucose levels um, and circulating glucose and fructose even. So if you can go down that rabbit hole, because we think about fruit is good for us. Yes, it is. But when the ele- when there's an elevation of these sugars, the fungus is resistant to any type of medication or treatment. So when we treat this in our clinical setting, we treat pharmaceutically with nystatin or fluconazole or a combination of nystatin and fluconazole. And sometimes I'm calling Dr. Blodgett and saying, I'm going to need you to co-prescribe a troche or a oral rinse or something with the other things we're doing for the gut or for the system because fluconazole is a stomach treatment. But unless we're doing it in tandem with a dietary approach, it doesn't work. It does not work. So that is fascinating.
0: That is so. Let me ask this, just out of curiosity: Are there certain people that are more prone to getting an overgrowth of yeast, or you know, does that have anything to do with genetic background or anything like that,
1: or is it more about diet? It's this is such a great question, and it is its own little rabbit hole because what we have as a what we've normalized or our baseline now it at least let's just speak about this country is we're at about a hundred years of regular antibiotic use in our own bodies for treatment, right? Sometimes very necessary treatment of bacterial infections, but also in our food for our livestock, right? Yep. So that's one factor that we have a microbiome that's been exposed over and over and over to antibiotics. So if you're looking at the balance of fungus or yeast and bacteria through the entire system, we've provided incredible opportunity for yeast to overgrow because we keep killing off the bacteria that is trying to keep everything in check. And that microbiome is passed down mother to child. Then that child gets more antibiotics. That child has a child. Okay. So we know it's The science really looks at three generations of burden. So whatever your grandmother did is affecting you in a pretty significant way. Okay, But if you pair that with a hundred years of um, refining our food and refining is in essence pulling fiber out. So we have become a refined food, processed food culture. So we're taking away the things that actually feed the good microbes, i.e. fiber resistant starches, and we are adding in sugars and refined fats, which are inflammatory and feeding the microbes that we don't want to proliferate. Genetics. I don't know how much genetics play a role because honestly, I don't even think we can see that anymore because what we're really seeing is the fallout of, a diet that's not suited for humans or the microbiome paired with, you know, generations of antibiotic use. And I think this is why specific to candida overgrowth, we see this so consistently in uh, human beings today because they're dealing with generations of poor gut health as a result of diet and pharmaceuticals. Okay, so I'm just gonna say that
0: this conversation makes me feel helpless and hopeless.
1: <laughs> but yeah. I know, but
0: I know we are not. No, no, no. On that front, let's. Yeah. I want to. I want to do that. I want to just jump to question four about how do we take care of this. But I want to back up because I don't want to miss out on. Question two is how can we test or identify the presence of Candida? I know that from an oral standpoint, um, oral DNA offers a test specifically for oral Candida. Um, I believe is it Microblink DX that you... Microgen
1: DX also has what's called a I think it's called a Dental Key is the name of the test and it looks at bacteria and uh, fungal um, microbes as well.
0: Okay, so that's how we can test to see like, hey, is this what's going on here? Yeah. Um. Then tell us after that rousing,
1: compressing <laughs> review, review of our systems. Yes. What can we do about them? Yeah. When so, we're sitting
0: in our chair as a hygienist looking at our patient knowing, hey, we've got a fungal infection going on and we've got, you know, either decay or periodontal disease or something that we're trying to take care of. What steps can we take to really help that patient?
1: Yeah you know, the body is a really incredible organism and it heals very quickly if you put it in the right environment. And that's what I tell everybody I work with. And a huge portion of my patient population is very, very ill. So I'm telling them this is not hopeless because it legitimately isn't. However, Depending on the severity of the situation, you have to match it with the severity of the in- intervention is the way I look at it, right? Yep. So what we're typically going to be looking at to restore the, the microbiome and affect the biofilms positively and prevent this from occurring again is going to be a combination of diet supplementation and pharmaceuticals in most cases. And so this is how I would, this is how I would lay it out. We're normally going to have some level of intervention with a an antifungal and in oral health, that's likely also gonna have some sort of antibacterial agent involved. Again, that's because of how they interact with each other that you wanna be dealing with both things at one time and not leaving one to proliferate by itself, right? But we have to affect the fuel source for these fungus. So we have to shift the diet. So the diet that we use with our patients is what we deem, not very creatively, the antifungal diet. <laughs> okay. So what it is, is a very whole, it's a completely whole food-based diet that is free from any type of refined sugar, all grain. Think about what grain even breaks down to in your mouth, yeah. Right. Yep. There's no, no fruit. There's no honey. There's no maple syrup. Please note, this is a therapeutic diet. This is not a forever diet. This is intended to bring the body back to a state of balance. Um, and so what, and, and also we keep white potatoes out. Um, and so what the person is eating is a lot of vegetables. They're eating animal proteins. They're eating eggs as long as we don't have an intolerance. Um, Dairy is very iffy. We typically, unless we have a food sensitivity test saying that they tolerate it, we keep it out. And also there's lactose in dairy that is going to feed the yeast. Um, They're eating beans and lentils. This is really important. We want a high fiber diet. We want a lot of soluble fiber. They're eating nuts. They're eating seeds. Okay. So that's normally 30 days while we're doing the pharmaceutical treatment. And then keep in mind that Candida, as its own little organism, sequesters micronutrients from your food for its own replication. (laughs) They're little buggers.
0: They are.
1: They are. So we're looking at giving somebody typically a multivitamin that has or in adjunct with a high level of zinc. Okay. We're making sure that they have enough iron because iron and zinc are both sequestered. And then we're normally going to give somebody quite a bit of vitamin C up to five, six grams a day um, to help their immune system clear this. And then critical, critical, critical. And you know, I'm going to self-promote here, but really this is super important. You have to have soluble fiber in large quantity, about 20 grams a day because you're going to be pushing these dead microbes through the body and you need them to bind and leave through your poop. So that's a huge part of what we're doing as well. When we're, when we're doing the die off phase of this.
0: And when she says self-promotion, she means fluorosophy. So again, check it out.
1: <laughs> check it out. And and keep in mind, too, that a good probiotic while you're doing this protocol is really helpful. Um, I don't have any affiliation with any probiotics, but typically we're doing a sporebiotic for 30 days um, to help repopulate. It's not the spore biotic isn't necessarily populating, but it's helping your own healthy bacteria repopulate the surface area of your entire gastrointestinal tract. So that is is how we signal to the body that it can make the change that it hasn't been in an environment to make for, you know, maybe generations, right? Yeah. The only way to actually re-diversify the bacteria, the microbiome is with fermented food. You can support your own microbes with soluble fiber and resistant starch. But you cannot, you cannot re-diversify without fermented food. So you're talking kimchi, sauerkraut, you know, yogurts of whatever type, if you can tolerate them. I just picked up some fermented seaweed. It was delicious. So we're looking at, you know, foods that have their own microbes in them. Those will actually repopulate and diversify.
0: And would you say those are a better way of doing that than taking a probiotic?
1: Yeah, it's really important to know a probiotic does not diversify your microbiome. It cannot live in you permanently. It is transient. It comes in, it helps people out in there, and then it leaves. The only way for them to stay is through fermented foods. And there's really great research. I think that came out of Stanford in the last couple of years. I'm forgetting the um, researcher's name, but he did an eloquent study that really showed you, you, you can't rebuild diversity outside of fermented foods.
0: Got it. Yeah. That's good to know. That's good mm-hmm. to know. because Probiotics seem to be, you know, touted as, as the, the end all be all.
1: Yeah. And they're great for what they do. They just don't do that. Yeah. So before we move on
0: to the virus aspect, is there anything else about candida and fungal infections that we need to know and understand?
1: I think the only thing I would say about them is I caution that in the oral health world, we often think about candida as thrush. And in Mm -hmm. the absence of thrush, it's like, oh, well, there probably isn't a problem with candida. Candida comes in many forms. And I don't know why in some people it presents as thrush and in others, you can't see it at all. But I would just say, test, don't guess. That's our motto in functional medicine. Yep. Yep. I agree. So let's shift over to the
0: viruses that can impact oral health. And mm-hmm. I know there's, I guess, four or five now that we're aware of.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think this is really interesting. Um, we're seeing Epstein-Barr herpes um, come up more and more in, in periodontal disease specifically um, there's really interesting new research that's come out about COVID-19 um, triggering periodontal disease. And so I think regardless of the virus, what we're thinking about is what are those viruses that once you get them, they never leave?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, maybe it's all of them. We don't really know. But right. what we're saying now is we know there are some viruses. Let's we'll just say Epstein-Barr. Once you get it, it's there what you want is that it goes latent sits itself on the shelf and looks pretty, but it doesn't do anything. Right. Right. But in those moments where we are uh, compromised for whatever reason, it may reactivate itself. It's linked to oral health um, manifestations like periodontal disease. And there's argument about why that is. And I think what they're, assuming based on the research at this point is that it's a chronic inflammatory process that's going on and it's affecting all the tissues in the body. It's not like, oh, it's just the mouth is the problem and everything else seems to be fine. It's that all of the tissue is being chronically um, activated in this inflammatory cascade. Now I'd argue also based on just my experience clinically with people that have had chronic infection period, that there is a significant depletion of micronutrients in that situation as well because of the demand on the immune system to show up every single day. So we think about the immune system, we kind of take it for granted, but in reality, to make those actual immune cells take micronutrients. yeah. So if we have a savings account of vitamin C, but we're dealing with a chronic illness, it might drain your savings account, right? And so we think about the connective tissue in the mouth And we think about, okay, well, we know we need vitamin C. We know we need vitamin D. We know we need zinc. There's a lot of nutrients we need just to keep that connective tissue in check. So that may be why we're seeing that more and more in these um, chronic viral infections.
0: Yeah. um, So for viruses, if we think about the the second part of this question, you know, how how do they interact with the oral bacteria? But I also wanna tie it to, cause we've already introduced you know, Candida into the conversation. How are they working with when we do
1: have the fungal infection too? I, I don't know if, I have not seen research actually to say whether or not these microbes are physically interacting with each other in the mouth and, and um, improving their own perpetuation. That, that may be happening with the viruses, but I haven't seen anything that specifically says that. I don't know if it's just localized inflammation. Cause I know we see them in the, um, tests like when a root canal or tooth from a root canal is extracted. And then that area in the endodontic tissue is tested. We'll see these viruses in there. So they're living in there. They're harboring themselves in there for one reason or another. And are they perpetuating tissue damage just with their presence? Possibly they're surely recruiting immune cells to the area that will right. then cause the tissue damage. Right.
0: Right. Right.
1: But what I do think it goes back to time and time again is the body can only take so much burden. Yes. And that's not just microbes, right? It's stress, it's sleep deprivation, it's crappy diet, whatever. It doesn't matter. Right. The, this organism can only handle so much. So I think one of the things we see with these chronic viral infections in the presence of, bacterial issues candida is that the body just can't show up to all those parties at one time yeah right so it just becomes chronically depleted
0: and then i guess really there's there's not any way to test virus wise from an oral manifestation manifestation aspect Um, I get really irritated. Um, actually my assistant a couple of weeks ago, wasn't feeling great and went to the doctor and she came back and she's like, well, they put me on antibiotic. I'm like, did they actually test you for anything? She's like, no, they feel like it's probably just a bacterial infection. I'm like, but what if it's viral and that antibiotic isn't going to touch anything. And it's just, like you said, it's going to kind of mess up the whole immune
1: response. Right, right. And that's one of the problems that has led us to where we are right now is that, antibiotic response without identifying if it's a bacteria we're putting people on antibiotics meaning we're suppressing their own body's immune system because we're getting rid of healthy bacteria that should be supporting the launch against the viral infection right so it's you know when we think about viral infections I'm thinking about a person has to sort of present that way and that's not um that's not the same presentation as you see with candida that can be lots of different systems, a person with a chronic viral infection where it's been reactivated, they have things like chronic fatigue syndrome, right? They have, they, they are not okay. Or they have this um, cyclic presentation where they say every three weeks, every six weeks, every eight weeks, it's something like that, I go down, right? Then we're looking at the viral load, but you're typically doing that with blood testing. You're going to look at, you know, and even like the general labs, like quest labs have those viral, uh, panels, which can be helpful to tell us if it's actually activated in their body. Got it. So then if that's present,
0: you know, what are we doing about that? Is that more about supporting immune health as much as possible until that, that clears and goes dormant again?
1: It really is. And, you know, it, it, I always joke about this for anybody that's married out there, um, you know, when my husband gets sick, he goes to bed and he stays there till he's better. Is that what you do? Because it's surely no, not what you I just do. Push
0: forward and keep working and doing all the things.
1: There you go. So I think you know, as as much as I don't practice what I preach in this area, um, when we think about chronic viral infections affecting the whole system, including the mouth, the the logic around how we support the system is really old school you need to sleep, you need to manage stress with whatever tools you have to do that, even when you can't affect the stress, right? You need to eat food that doesn't put your body out of balance in any other way, which means it needs to be blood sugar balancing. It can't be a crappy, you know, even a non-crappy diet can throw your blood sugar out of balance, which causes more inflammation in the system. So we're, we're eating a fairly low carb, very highly dense diet lots of vegetables, we want to really boost our system with antioxidants. That's really important. That's how your body goes, oh, I'm going to get out of this oxidative stress. And then I'll tell you, I have a couple of little uh, tricks up my sleeve that I use with people um, from a supplement perspective. If all those things are being handled that I, again, I have no affiliation with these, but I sort of live and live and breathe by them. Um, one is called bioimmunozyme, and that's through Biotics Research, and that is a hardcore immune supplement. It you take it and you feel it when you're coming down with something. And so I'll have people that I'm concerned about take that every single day, especially throughout fall, winter, and spring mm-hmm. when they're exposed to more. Um, and then we do a lot with vitamin C, and we have a protocol with vitamin C where we have people start on one gram in the morning, one gram at night. So you're gonna see that as a thousand milligrams or one gram, just an ascorbic acid tablet of whatever brand you want. And then the next day, two and two, the next day, four and four, you're gonna go till you hit bowel intolerance, which means you have diarrhea, (laughs) okay? And then you back down again, because that means that is your intestinal cells saying, yep, I hit max overload. I'm not going to absorb anymore. And then you back down again and you kind of find this, this, we don't like people doing high dose for too long because you can have an issue with oxalates and we don't want to have kidney stones, but to get you your body back out of that viral cycle, good couple of weeks of high dose vitamin C makes a huge difference.
0: Nice. Good to know. Yep. I like it. So lastly, let's talk about parasites. And this is something that I don't feel like gets talked about a whole lot in dentistry. Yeah. Um, I know from my own experience, um, I do have a phase contrast microscope. Um, and so I've seen them my, for myself, um, which is really creepy to see. Yeah. But talk to us a little bit about, about where do those come from? How does that come into play? And, and how does that, how, what do we need to know about that?
1: Yeah. You know, I was doing research for the last Perioprotect, and I was thinking about what I see in clinic from a parasite perspective, and I didn't know if that was something that affected oral health at all. So I have learned about this from, from trying to connect the mouth to what I'm seeing through the rest of the body. So I'll tell you what I know, which is not expansive in the oral health um, world, but parasites in general, are very common in the US, although we don't think they are because we're still looking at numbers from like the 1960s and 1970s. We are not looking at, you know, when a microbe arrives here in the US, it just it, it just replicates, right? So we can look at the statistics for 1980 and they're going to look totally different than they look today because of replication. So from a gut perspective, we do a lot of parasite testing because we see a large amount of symptoms associated with parasites. So then I got to thinking, okay, well, I have people that have been with a parasitic infection for years, if not decades, uh, based on symptoms that then when we treat them, the symptoms go away, right? It's caused systemic inflammation. So then we kind of go back to a similar conversation around viruses. Like if you've had systemic inflammation because your immune systems had to target a parasite for, you know, umpteen years, that's a problem for the mouth. But when I dug into the research on the mouth, I learned that, oh, there are commensal oral parasites. I did not know that there were parasites that were just allowed to live in the mouth and be happy there and healthy there, and they don't cause any problems. Well, it turns out that now the research is saying, no, that's not the case. Those parasites may be able to be there in small quantity and not cause problems, but just like yeast, just like pathogenic bacteria, when they get out of control, now they are being seen as pathogenic and as um, associated with the severity of periodontal disease. So I don't know if you guys have testing for for that. I have no idea if there are tests available in the dentistry community to see if there's an overgrowth, but the research is now saying this is going to be a problem and it needs to be something that's reevaluated.
0: When should, when do you recommend we think parasite? Like, what are you seeing that helps you know, okay, this is likely a parasitic infection?
1: You know, I think anytime they're complaining about gut issues, you should be thinking about it um, because it is so, it can be very commonly localized um, to the GI tract. So when I'm thinking about a lot of different microbes, I'm not necessarily thinking, oh, that I'm going to see a GI manifestation, but I am thinking that with parasites, because even if it's not causing major digestive issues, it's going to be irritating the lining of the intestines, just from an immune perspective. Now I will say from a, and I know you guys don't always have access to blood work, but I will generally see a small elevation in eosinophils in the white blood cell differential when there's a parasitic infection. So that's something I'm paying attention to as well. I think what it ends up being in the oral health community is when all the other things don't make sense, this might be the thing, right? And that is, that that's how parasites started for me was, okay, well, we've looked at this and we've looked at this and we looked at this, what could it be? That's when I would probably be thinking about it because I bet you, you're going to see more commonly these other issues um, are, are behind the problems you're seeing in the mouth and parasites will probably be a smaller percentage of what you're seeing. Yeah. So then how do we take care of those? Yeah, they're a little tricky. To be honest with you, we we do two things. One is if it is something like, okay, so in the GI world, Giardia, um, Cryptosporidium, those are microbes that we don't like to mess around with with herbs because they are fairly resistant and we go straight to pharmaceuticals. But a lot of these uh, microbes really do, um, get knocked out by, uh, products like biocidin and biocidin might be the right call in the oral health world because they have a toothpaste and they have liquid that the patient can swoosh with. And so they have pretty good research behind them that they are anti-parasitic, um, the herbs used in their products in the GI tract withstanding, I would say, cryptosporidium and, and, um. Giardia, so that would be probably where I start with somebody is using those type of products that are the um, blends of anti-parasitic herbs. Good, that's helpful. Thank you. Yeah.
0: So thank you for a wonderful overview um, <laughs> of these micro, micro microbes. Um, and obviously, we you know having them in our mouth is very concerning because we know what it's what's happening orally, but we also have to know and understand that this is the gateway to the rest of our body. And what I say to patients is what's happening here is happening everywhere. So we really need to stand up and pay attention to this. Um, You know, help us understand a little bit about translocation of these microbes and how that plays into total health and immunity.
1: Yeah. You know, I think um, this is, this is going to be the wave of the future when it comes to research because What we know is that the immune system, when it's working well within the entire digestive tract. So when I say digestive tract, I'm referring to mouth to tail ends, right? It's the whole tube. So the immune system has modulated itself to be able to live in harmony with microbes. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to have a microbiome all the way through that tube, right? And the way the immune system interacts has, uh, the, it's influenced by a lot of things. It's influenced by the microbes that are in there. It's influenced by um, our diet. It's influenced by trauma and stress and concussion and injury, and alcohol and toxins and drugs and whatever. So what we're really looking at is, is that tube mouth to tail ends, a properly uh, functioning permeable, but selectively permeable barrier, it lets in what's supposed to go in and it doesn't let in what's not supposed to go in, right? When there's damage to that barrier, and I describe it to people as their inside skin, because it's actually the same cellular structure as the skin, but it has a nice mucosal barrier over it that protects it a little more and a better immune system. But when there's damage to that skin, and microbes can move into the bloodstream, Okay, so now they are no longer harness, or just living within the, the tube. Now they're moved into our bloodstream. Then the immune system has a secondary immune response to it. And that immune response is not as friendly because those microbes are not meant to live in the bloodstream. They're supposed to stay in the gut. Well, we used to think that just happened in the intestines. But we've now learned that that happens widely in the mouth, in the spaces I imagine between periodontal and endodontic tissue, um, because that's where we know that we have these capillaries that innervate, right? And so those microbes can be taken and their endotoxins, I should say. It's not just the microbe, it's also what the right. microbes excrete. Lipopolysaccharide is probably the most uh, well known into the bloodstream. Well, what we're seeing now in the research, which is like so exciting and terrifying all at the same time is that those microbes are setting up shop on our other organs, our peripheral organs, and they're leading to tissue buildup and chronic inflammation and probably autoimmunity. Last year-ish, I was doing some research for some patients that had endometriosis, and this is what really got me into the literature on this, is that Japanese researchers were finding the translocation of microbes from the digestive tract within the tissue of the endometrial tissue that they were removing surgically. And their hypothesis is that that tissue is an immune response to try to encapsulate the microbe because the microbe is not meant to be there, right? Yeah. So now paper after paper after paper is showing these microbes from our mouth and from our gut are ending up in the cardiovascular tissue, they're ending up on the pancreas. The gut barrier is critical. And when I say that, I mean the mouth all the way down. That barrier is critical. We need to keep it um, functioning with selective permeability. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, we have a hard task ahead of us. We do. Yeah. So
0: being a nutritionist, Mm -hmm. um, will you give us just some thoughts on how to communicate the value of true nutrition with our patients when it comes to supporting health and treating disease? And I know you've given us some, you know, I feel like if you're listening to this, like Megan's already given us so much information from a nutrition standpoint of how to really direct our patients. Um, And I want to make this point because I just this week um, had a hygienist that I work and coach with say to me like, you know, I just don't, I feel like talking about nutrition is kind of like outside of my scope of practice. Um, And I'm not really sure, you know, what I should say, you know, I'm not a doctor. I can't prescribe things. Like, I don't really know how to have this conversation, but based off everything that we just talked about, and especially when we're thinking about candida and how much diet drives that, like this has to be a conversation that we are educated on and feel empowered to have if we're truly going to help our patients.
1: I agree. I agree. And you have such a beautiful opportunity to echo what is being said by well-educated providers to a patient. Every pa- every time a patient interacts with a medical provider or healthcare provider, they should be hearing this message. You are what you eat for real. Yeah. Like not, not, not like in some kind of cute storybook land of what we tell kindergartners. You literally are. And so When I'm educating patients, there's a couple of little anecdotes that I say. One of them, because I have a lot of animals in my life, goats and horses and dogs. So I use this example. I say, listen, there's an appropriate diet for every species. I would not feed my horses dog kibble and I wouldn't feed my dogs hay. There's an appropriate diet for the human species. Now you can fiddle with it. You can make it a little more carb, a little, little less meat, a little, I don't care, but it's whole foods. It's real food. You need to shop the perimeter. If you want to be a healthy human species, that's period end of story. Yes. Okay. The other thing I say to people is every process that your body's trying to go through on a daily basis requires certain vitamins and minerals. Truly, that's how it actually works. Your body's going to negotiate where it puts the vitamins and minerals as a matter of priority. So the first priority in almost all cases is going to be keeping your heart beating. So if that means we need to have calcium and magnesium and copper and zinc and iron for that process, that's where it's going to go. And if that means the savings account's depleted and we're not going to make hormones or we're not going to make neurotransmitters or we're not going to rebuild your tissue or we're not going to make sure you can see at night when you drive, bummer because keeping the heart beating is the number one. So instead of forcing your body to negotiate processes, how about we just give it enough to do all of the processes beautifully. And we will do that by making sure that your nutrition is adequate and your supplementation is adequate. That means you don't have room for putting a cheeseburger from McDonald's and an ice cream cone from dairy queen in your mouth every day, because I need you to be putting the things in that actually provide the building blocks you need to finish the processes. So we have to revisit how we talk about nutrition. It's, it's not the second or third or 10th or 20th thing we should be talking about in health. It's the number one foundation period.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I know that's one of the questions we have on our medical history is what do, you know, what does your diet look like? Because you've got to know that going in, because if you've got a diet full of processed foods and chemicals and, garbage, it doesn't matter what we do from our standpoint, we're already in a losing battle. So I think that is so, so true. And I, I think hygienists, we have to get out of our heads. This is not about, um, you know, body shaming or talking about weight loss or any of that. It's none of that. This is just about, hey, I want to support your body to be as healthy as possible. And it was designed to need these nutrients in order to do that. So I want to encourage us hygienists to really get on the bandwagon with this, to really dig in and understand this. And I want to empower all of us to have these conversations and become that ally with the patient. Yep, absolutely.
1: Yeah. Um, You know, there are endless studies showing that people that are between a BMI of 25 and 30 are actually healthier than people that are between a 20 and a 25. And I speak to that because this is not about weight. And we talk about food like that is the only connection. And it's just not. You know, people that eat a little bit more probably are better nourished. They probably are thriving. We're undernourishing ourselves if we don't eat enough food. We're also undernourishing ourselves if we don't eat enough of the right food. So this is not, this just doesn't have to do with metabolism. And we need to move away from that in the conversation because this is truly about putting the building blocks on the construction site that are needed to build the house, put it all there. If you don't have it, you're going to really struggle. Right? Yeah. 100% agree.
0: Well, Megan, this has been so helpful. Um, This is one of those episodes that I will go back and listen to and probably make some notes um, just because it's been so informative and I really appreciate it. And I think this is so key and foundational for us to be able to do the right things for our patients. So I am really appreciative of your time and your passion and your expertise. Thank you. Thank you for being a repeat guest. Um, How can patients reach you? I'm sorry. How can listeners reach you? (laughs)
1: Um, Probably the best way to reach me is through BioLounge, which is Megan at BioLoungePDX.com or through my website, www.BioLoungePDX.com. You can learn all things uh, fiber at thinkfluorosophy.com. And that is a really great resource, I will say, for hygienists because we have handouts that have recipes and um, information that's actually helpful for your patients. Um, And uh, I would love to hear from you. I love hearing, I love working with hygienists. I love working with dentists. This is like my total happy place. So please do reach out.
0: Nice. I love that. And we will include all of those links in the show show notes too, to make it easy for you guys. Um, But uh, everybody, let's go have a really great whole food full of vegetable dinner tonight. (laughs) And let's start talking about nutrition with our patients tomorrow. Let's let's really dig in on this, you guys. Thank you, Megan, for joining us. I hope everyone has a great week and we will see you next time on Bulletproof Hygiene. Bye-bye, everybody. Thanks for taking your valuable time to invest in yourself and listen to this episode. I hope it's been thought-provoking, empowering, and stirred your curiosity. If you've enjoyed this content, please click the subscribe button to catch new episodes or share this episode with your colleagues. To keep track of upcoming Bulletproof events and opportunities, visit Bulletproofhygiene.com or better yet, join the Mighty Network Bulletproof Hygiene community to connect with like-minded dental professionals that share ideas, struggles, and wins. Have a great week, everybody.